This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. guest today is Dr. Carol H. Green III, a retired Air Force colonel and board-certified consulting psychologist. For most of his career, Dr. Green provided leadership and consultation services to many of the United States' most elite military special mission teams and special access programs. He developed and led psychological research and applications to enhance individual and unit performance through assessment, selection, and training of military special operations personnel. Dr. Green's 34-plus years of military and civilian service to units in the U.S. Special Operations Command included clinical health care leadership, operational support to combat and intelligence operations, as well as consultation to senior commanders on unique operational and personnel performance challenges. With more than 40 years of leadership experience in government, private, and public organizations, his consultation and coaching services also include managing small business challenges and consultation to a large public utility. Thanks, Dr. Green, for joining me today as a fellow former military officer and member of a sister service the Air Force. As you and many of my listeners know, I served as an active duty Army officer and psychologist, so we have much in common. Welcome, Carol, to the Voice of Leadership. Thank you, Karen. It's a pleasure to be here, and I certainly appreciate your invitation. Good. I'm so glad to have you. So let's just jump right in, Carol. For those who might not know, give us a brief description of military special operations units. Who are they and what do they do? Well, Karen, I think when most people uh, think of military special operations, um, and, and when I do too, we're thinking about the operators themselves. Of course, there are many support organizations, but we're thinking of Navy SEALs, the uh, U.S. Army Special Forces, Air Force Special Operations, Air Commandos, and today the Marine Raiders of uh, the U.S. Marine Corps. Those are the organizations people would normally think of. So tell us a little bit, Carol. I know people watch the news and they see a few stories, but what do these special operations units do in general, and how are they different from regular military units? Well, one of the, one of the things that's, that's true about warfare and about operations that have a, a large measure of, of logistics and large measures of potentially violence, but certainly large operations associated with them is the, is the potential for small things to get overlooked and the potential for objectives to become larger than they actually need to be simply because of the, of the size of units that are moving. So in the larger Army, the larger Air Force, uh, it's very easy to lose sight of the mission in the midst of all the other confusion that happens during wartime. Special operations units are smaller. 
They are more focused. They do what are referred to as more surgical type of operations where there's a specific objective to be achieved and a small unit, a small specially trained, highly uh, organized and heavily practiced unit can go in and do something that a large organization, a much larger organization, would have more difficulty implementing. So they're more of a surgical organization to move in smaller ways, smaller teams, and to achieve very specific objectives. So in one way, maybe we might think about it is that they're really wired to do a strategic kind of a strike in a way. Very true. If there's if there's something that needs to be done on a relatively small scale and it needs to be done with speed, with a surprise, with precision, um, and per- perhaps even with a degree of secrecy, then those are usually uh, special operations units that will be chosen for those kind of jobs. Okay, great. That's a wonderful description. So, therefore, people have an idea of what we're talking about. So, in your work with these elite military units, what have you found to be some of the most pressing leadership challenges for leaders who are operating at this level? What do they have to deal with? Well, on the one hand, they deal with uh, similar challenges that leaders in any organization uh, have, uh, the challenges of resources, primarily of relationship, trust building, and communication. That is both up, down, and across the organization with their seniors. Of course, their seniors have to have confidence in them. The tasks they're being assigned are are tasks of great importance and very high risk. In that way, they're maybe not a lot different than leaders of any other large organization. But there are, there are leadership challenges occur that occur, as you remember, in garrison is a term we use for when troops are not deployed, but they're at home, they're involved in training, they're involved in uh, trying to spend a little time with their families, but many of our special operations organizations don't get to do much of that. When they're at home, they're training for their next, next missions, and they always have advanced skills that need recertifying and new, are building new skills. So the commander's job or the leader's job is to build relationships, build trust, communicate with these people, and to affirm them and to direct them. And and when you think about special operations, all of these organizations are hand-selected, both psychologically, physically, and by the leaders and security officials of these these smaller units. So they're hand-selected. These are people that are not just coming off the street. They're coming from other military organizations where they've already passed through a number of very strong selection processes and have already proven themselves. So these, so we're talking now about getting the best of the best from these already existing military organizations. And when you get people like that, you normally end up with, and, and we can talk about the characteristics of these people, but they're normally very bright. They are, they have high initiative they're relatively aggressive, and I don't mean only physically, but they are physically fairly aggressive, and they are mentally aggressive and cognitively very aware. They're strong learners, and they like to apply what they know. So one of the one of the challenges of leaders in times when the units are not deployed, they're not in harm's way, is just keeping the energy flowing in the organization. And I think we've all are aware of the fact that you get a team with very high initiative that is not challenged, does not have something immediate and pressing to do, does not have an external enemy or objective to achieve, they sometimes kind of turn on themselves and they develop conflict within. So I think one of the challenges executives and leaders have is to keep those teams challenged, keep that initiative flowing, and at the same time, direct it in the right directions 
um, and make sure that proper processes are being followed as teams try to implement all this aggressive energy that they have. So this is great, Carol. You said a number of things I just want to highlight and make sure that we are hearing here. You mentioned that we're looking at the best of the best of existing military service members. And you mentioned that these are people who obviously are bright, they have high initiative, they're very aggressive, they're strong leaders in their own right, and they like to be challenged. So actually, they're they're probably best when doing what they're wired for, and they have more problems when they're not being challenged and when they're maybe sitting at home waiting for the next mission. So let me ask you a couple of things. You talked a little bit about selection How do you select for these abilities? For somebody who's going to be an elite operator, how do you determine who's appropriate and who isn't? Well, there are uh, multiple components in almost all the selection processes that I've ever been involved in. And when you're looking at uh, selecting from an already proven group of people uh, to get the elite, the elite always depends on, well, what are you looking for? What kind of characteristics are you looking for? Because you could be an elite in, you know, achieving one objective, but you could be handicapped in order to achieve some other. So we're talking about the kind of missions I discussed before. So first off, people have to be satisfied with being sort of behind the curtain. Uh, if you want to be famous, you want to be well known, you want to be uh, the chief of staff of one of our military services, which is the highest uniformed officer that leads that service, then you you probably are not interested in special operations. So these are people who, and the, the most popular term to describe them is quiet professional. These are quiet professionals who prefer to be kind of not in the public eye. In fact, very often things that go on in public and things that are the most popular trend things in public, a typical special operator would would automatically shy away from simply because if everybody's doing it, I'm not very interested. So they have to be very satisfied with being uh, quiet professional, not extremely visible. They have to be uh, very bright in terms of performance and analytics. As psychologists, you and I know we give cognitive as well as performance aspects to intelligence tests. So we're looking for people who are very, very strong in their performance side of these of intelligence or cognitive tests, which simply means that they're good at maps. They, they are good at right-brained activities like mechanical reasoning and forming of, uh, of visual relationships in their mind that they can use as maps for action or process diagrams that help them decide how things need to be done to accomplish uh, complicated objectives. But they also have to be bright analytically and verbally. They have to be very moral and ethical because they will be in their careers in very, very difficult circumstances where life and death is involved. They'll have decisions to make. And the first thing we want is for them to uh, acquit themselves in a moral fashion on the battlefield and in the operations and with with all of the teams they lead, because you can't lead a team if you are uh, less than a moral and ethical uh, paragon in terms of uh, those forces. We want them also to be confident, but humble. You can't be confident to the point of narcissism or to the point of the point of being arrogant uh, and still be accepted by a team. So although you can be confident, your team has to accept you and has to rely on your confidence. So humility Most operators would tell you that humility is one of the things that's most important. You have to be very tolerant of uncertainty and very resilient when you deal with adversity or failure and even the loss of team members. Uh, You have to be able to discipline and push down your emotion, compartmentalize it, 
and to move on to whatever objective that you're trying to achieve. All of these things are built. We select people who have a lot of that to start with, but then the training process for special operations teams builds more and more of that because they're gradually fed challenge after challenge. It gets progressively a little more difficult each time so that over time, they're progressively learning to have more confidence, more skill, but it's done a little bit at a time so that nobody experiences a great deal of failure or disappointment or, or a great sense of despair. So it sounds like there are a lot of components that go into being ready to make these life and death decisions and to really have these critical decision-making skills. You've talked earlier about having a sense of situational or cognitive awareness, and, and now you're also talking about being tolerant of uncertainty, discipline, being able to, in essence, control your emotions under different circumstances, and having some opposite kind of abilities, that balance between being confident and also humble at the same time. So you're really looking for a very specialized person. What else is important in the life and death decision besides that moral and ethical compass and that confident, humble aspect? What else is important? When you talk about making life and death decisions, uh, I think a lot of our operators would say that practice is what makes the difference. When, when we think about special operators, we often think about combat missions. We think about uh, missions in deployed areas, but their training at home is almost just as dangerous. We lose special operators almost every week in training scenarios across all of the services. Uh, any one service uh, is not typically going to, to lose anyone very often, but just for example, the Marine Corps over the last five or six years has lost five or six people at a time in training accidents when helicopters go down or when you have uh, friendly fire incidents, which happen more in combat. But we also have injuries that can happen when doors are being blown off, when people are firing live ammunition, even in training scenarios, and jumping out of aircraft, even flying in aircraft is, is a dangerous thing to do, but especially under the conditions that uh, a lot of these operators are trained to do it in. They do some very dangerous things, and so they have a lot of practice making life and death decisions even before they reach combat situations. You know, one of the things you just mentioned about how important it is to practice, if I think about even corporate executive leaders, there's a lesson there, too, that practice is important for being able to be ready to go live in the real situation. And of course, the mission of the military is dangerous enough that there are even losses during the training. You know, as you mentioned, there are training accidents, training deaths, and so on and so forth. But what other parallels do you see between these elite military units and corporate executives? What can the corporate executives learn from the elite military leaders and units? Well, I think conceptually, of course, there are, this, there are situations maybe slightly different. Some of the risks they take may be slightly different, although our corporate business executives certainly take and have to deal with very big risks in terms of financial risk or logistical risk, uh, things like that. But I think some of the things that, that carry over are humility, intelligence, you know, that moral and ethical base. Uh, you know, how many, how many times have we seen, either in the military or in, in civilian business, moral and ethical issues that, that damage, you know, greatly damage a business. 
also that ability to tolerate uncertainty. I think those are things that are extremely important, both in business as well as in military leadership. And interpersonal skills, that's something I didn't hit on very heavily a little while ago, but special operations focuses on not just the combat or what we think of as the physical combat or kinetic aspect of warfare, but also of the stabilization and the winning of hearts and minds. It's one of the things that U.S. Army Special Forces are are known for and really strive to achieve is that is a, is a cultural familiarity, a uh, an ability to support local populace while trying to deal with insurgent elements and to support and win the hearts and minds of the local populace that eventually will have to restabilize the country. You have to be concerned about listening to them. So listening skills are important. You have to be concerned about understanding what is critical to them and their families and the people of that culture. So I think getting to know your people, whether in, in uh, special operations military settings or in the business setting, is, is just as important in the skills that we do that with. I have a tendency to, to rely on five skills when I have a chance, chance to lecture or teach, and that's calmness, listening, emotion, assertiveness, and realistic self-talk. The ability to physiologically calm oneself the ability to exercise very effective and uh, mainly open-ended and paraphrase-oriented listening skills, the ability to understand the role that emotion plays in everybody's behavior and the way that emotion can be used effectively to energize work groups around a vision or around an objective, and then assertive, how to speak to people in a less hostile manner when even you're disturbed inside, you're worried, you're fearful about some potential outcome of your talk or of what's going on in that organization. But the ability to speak assertively as opposed to hostily and to know what assertiveness is. And then the ability to control your own self-talk, your own internal dialogue that uh, can tend to make you more agitated or fearful. And with aggressive people, then when they become fearful, they become irritable and impatient and intolerant. That leaks out as arrogance and a lack of caring. So I think whether military or not, uh, those skills are extremely important and cross uh, the boundaries very, very easily. I really appreciate this part we're talking about now about the interpersonal skill, because it really does take a lot of listening to figure out what's important to the different constituent groups. And so if I think about corporate executives, certainly they have their own employees, the people in the company that they serve, and they also have external stakeholders, whether they be customers, suppliers, vendors, other people out there with whom they have to do business. And that ability to really connect with other people and what's important to them and to be able to instill and inspire that sense of confidence that, in fact, you're working with a partner who does care and who's going to do the right thing is important. So you've got that piece you mentioned, that listening, which certainly is important, I think, in our corporations today, and also the self-regulation piece. In other words, if you fly off at the handle and get uh, exercise and everything, that kind of shuts down oftentimes people sharing and people being willing to to be vulnerable with you. So I think those are very important parallels that also relate to the corporate executive environment as well. So Carol, uh, you mentioned earlier something about resilience, and I want to come back to that because we're in a very fast-paced and complex business environment, and we know that effective leaders do have to practice resilience. I would like for you to say a little bit more about that. What is resilience, 
And what are some specific action steps that you recommend for cultivating resilience? Well, Karen, I I like the word resilience to describe this particular concept, but it's been, it goes by other names too. It goes by grit, hardiness, Mm -hmm. a variety of other terms that have been used by some of the some of the people who are more famous in researching these aspects, but I particularly like a model that's advanced by um, Salvatore Matti and Deborah Kashaba. And they talk about resilience as consisting of five major components. Three are sort of attitudinal, and the other two are sort of processes. And uh, the three, the first three I'm gonna talk about are control, commitment, and challenge. Control simply means that in dealing with any kind of crisis, when a problem comes along, you're dealing with a difficulty uh, that may seem insurmountable. It's it's a real crisis kind of situation. The first thing is to focus on what we can control and not what we can't control. And that can be really difficult. A lot of times, uh, you know, very bright, very capable people will become wrapped up in thinking about the unfairness of something or the unrealistic thinking about whoever they're having to deal with over this issue. And, and all of those are things that can't be controlled. But when we can focus in on those things we can control, then we are moving toward a solution. The other thing is commitment. If we view every challenge with the focus on committing 100% of my effort to getting through this challenge, they focus on the challenge and not so much on the unfairness or sometimes we'll generate a lot of negative self-talk about the other person and their nature or their goals, their objectives and how out of line they are, how unrealistic this person is, that's all wasted thought. The most resilient people tend to focus on what can be controlled, what they can affect. They focus on the commitment to getting the resolution, not the rightness or wrongness of whoever they're involved in or whatever the situation is. And the third is challenge. People who expect to be challenged, people who expect to deal with adversity, are going to always do better. So when challenge or adversity comes along and sacrifices have to be made and it's time for me to to pay a price and to have to work harder, then I think of that if I I think life is full of challenges, doesn't have anything to do with anything I've done wrong or right, it's simply that that's going to happen every now and then. Then I don't waste a lot of time thinking about its unfairness or giving myself a lot of negative self-talk about how unrealistic it is. The other two things that Maddie and Kashaba talk about are social support. So the ability for a leader to be able to talk to, and of course, the higher up you are in the structure, the fewer people there are that you can talk to. But any leader should cultivate a group of people, a small group of people that they trust, that they know, keep everything said confidential, that they can just process their thoughts with. For some people, it's their spouse. For other people, it is is just a good friend who is in a similar business or a good friend that they know knows them well and will not mince words when it comes to giving feedback and, and telling them where they think they're off base. But we all need that. We need that social support and we need to be able to exhibit transformational thought. That's the fifth principle that they talk about. Transformational thought is simply that ability to say, well, I knew what we were working on five minutes ago, before five days ago, before this crisis occurred, and we began to have all this trouble, deal with this adversity, and make all this sacrifice. But what is going to be my new vision? What's going to be the new positive vision that I am cultivating for myself, for my organization, and 
how are we going to move toward that? Because that's the way you get past adversity. You don't get past it by thinking about the adversity you get or whining about the adversity. You get past it by creating a new vision. So those are the five things I think are really important, Karen. You know, I really love this because uh, there's a concept I talk about a lot with my clients, which is what can you do from your chair, which very much resonates with what you're talking about here. In other words, you focus on what you can influence, what you can control, what you can do something about. You accept the challenges as just a part of life. It's not anything weird or bizarre. That's just what leadership really is all about. And you're always looking for what I call, what's that next open door? In other words, if you run into a blind wall here, you don't stand at the blind wall and cry. You figure out, okay, where else can I go? How can I create another path? And that's all getting to that new vision or that transformational thought, as you call it. So those are really powerful ideas that you've actually shared. And I really appreciate that. So Carol, let me ask you very personally here now, since you spent a lot of your years working with these elite military units, what have you personally learned from working with these special mission teams? Oh, that's a that's a great question. And I've thought about it many, many times over the years. And I'm just so grateful having had the opportunity and the privilege of working with people who started off their lives. And these are all uh, young men and women in their, they're usually in their 20s, their mid to they say they're young to, to mid to late 20s, because in my case, I was working with organizations of people that were hand-selected from already existing military units. So some of these people were already ad- advanced in rank. And yet, you know, even though I was older than many of them, I saw strengths in them that I that just inspired me. Personal note for me is I tend to be one of those people who thinks a little too much. And special operators call that the uh, paralysis of analysis. Mm-hmm. So analyzing a little too much, thinking out what if this, what if that, which is not bad. I mean, it's a good quality to have if you're trying to do some planning and you're trying to make sure we don't run into any barriers that we haven't thought about. We're trying to get all our resources together. But it's very bad if you are faced with having to make a decision with only a little bit of information. And if you don't make that decision quickly, bad things are going to happen. So that's a situation that I have struggled with all my life. And trying to get past the the apprehension that comes with having to make quick decisions. It's been shown to me so many times that I'll deal with whatever comes up. I have to, you know, pull the trigger and make sure that I have just done the best I can right now to decide what variables are in play and what I need to do. And then I may have to change it tomorrow. I may have to change it again the next day because in this kind of volatile, uncertain environment that that business operates in and that the military operates in today, we're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to have to go back and do things again. So I think it's helped me overcome some of the anxiety or the paralysis by analysis that I've always had. You know, that's actually a great example because I think one of the hazards of our profession as psychologists is sometimes we can analyze things and we have the luxury frequently of time to do it depending on our work setting. My corporate executive clients, however, are very much like your elite military operators because they do have to make quick decisions with limited information. And they have to learn that very lesson you just mentioned, which is that you make the best decision now for today. And if you have to change the next hour or the next day because you have new information or a new perspective 
on the scenario, that's okay too. You can change. And I think that is really huge. So Carol, as you are thinking about all of this, and I I just want to remind you that my audience is principally an audience of business executives. And in your case, you are a senior leader yourself with many years of both military and civilian experience. So what words of wisdom do you want to leave for my audience of business executives? What would you like to say for them? What can they take forward from this? Boy, thank you, Karen. I don't get a chance to talk to business executives very often about this kind of thing, and especially leave my own words of wisdom. So thank you for the privilege. But I would I would say and this is this is thinking that I've come to sort of later in my years, and I might have been even afraid to say it, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, but I think love is very important. I think it's important to love your people, to love your business, even to love your business competitors in the sense that, now what I mean is, I don't want to marry them all, and I'm not, uh, you know, having a romantic relationship with them, but to love them in the sense of not wishing any anyone any ill will not doing anything or not feeling any animosity. Animosity is something that only gets in the way of creative thinking. It gets in the way of my objectivity. So to eliminate animosity and to just view everyone in my organization and everyone that I deal with, with a sense of love. Now, what that means is if if my three-year-old son uh, was getting too close to the electrical outlet on the wall, I might swat him on his bottom and say, no, don't touch that. That'll hurt you. So I'm not talking about holding back on feedback. I think one of the things about the uh, current concept of safe space is that we think that loving and caring about people means never being honest with them or never being straight with them or never being direct with them and never being critical. But that's not true. Love means doing for your people that you care about whatever things are necessary in order to move them toward their objectives, help them see their objectives in line with with the objectives of the organization. And when I do give criticism, when I do uh, have to dish out consequences or punishments, that it's done with caring. It's done with the same concern and care that I would for anyone that I cared about and was really trying to help find the right path or find a good path for to reach their objectives in life. So I think, I think the concept of love is a very important one. This is great. I mean, because when I think about that definition of love, doing what is best for those people and providing them the resources or what they need to be able to get the mission done, that's really important. And recognizing that if you have ill will or animosity, it actually keeps you in a frozen state. Or as you said, it really kind of restricts the creative and innovative thinking that you really need in today's complex business environment. So that definition of love is extremely relevant. And let me just ask you one little nuance here. How is your counsel the same or different for, let's say, senior military leaders who might be listening? I'm not sure it would be much different. I think it would be about the same. I think I would say, too, that, that the, the senior senior business leaders in general and military leaders, too, that I have known, I've been blessed to have some wonderful leaders that I've worked for in my career. And, and I would say that they probably resonate with that anyway, because I have seen that. And, and that's probably where my opinion comes from and having seen some of the better leaders in our world today and, and being very impressed with who they are. And they've taught me a great deal, too. 
So I guess the bottom line is that when we're really talking about executive leadership, whether military or civilian, there really are a lot of similarities in terms of what works and maybe what the pitfalls might be in terms of leadership. So Carol, I wanna thank you so much for being with me today on The Voice of Leadership. And I wanna thank my audience out there for listening. And you've heard it from someone who I respect, who's got tremendous experience in the military and civilian world. And so if you're asking yourself, what's love got to do with it? <laughs> now you've got the answer. <laughs> so Amen. thank you so much, Carol. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you for and the to, privilege, Karen. Yes, you are welcome. And to everyone else, we will see you next time. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources. Thank you.